0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Riskologists. This podcast is brought to you by Optimise and hosted by me, Pat Bradshaw. Optimise are thrilled to host this podcast series, where we'll be speaking with some of risk management's most respected and esteemed thought leaders from across the UK and beyond. Throughout this series, we'll be exploring our guests' journey within risk management, as well as delving into their unique insights and invaluable first-hand experiences around some of the industry's most pressing topics. Our goal? To create a platform in which ideas and thoughts can be shared in order to inspire and educate our audience and to ultimately give back to the risk management community across the world. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Riskologists. As always, I'm your host, Pat Bradshaw. Um, today, doing something slightly different. So, absolutely delighted to be joined by not just one guest, but but two. So, firstly, delighted to introduce Deepak Mystery. So, Dee, thanks a lot for coming on. No problem. Great stuff. And, and then secondly, again, um, it's my pleasure to introduce Richard Bendor Jones. So, Rich, again, thanks a lot for coming on. You're welcome. Brilliant. So... Um, Gents, I think a logical place to start with this, as I, as I do with all the podcasts, is a little bit of a journey to date, really. So um, just understanding, really, how you both got into risk management, um, a bit of a timeline of your career, um, and then your journeys leading up to this very point. So, Dee, would you like to kick us off?
1: <laughs> well, not to make this uh, too long. Uh, I've, I've had a bit of a varied career, uh, taken lots of uh, twists and turns along the way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: I suppose where my career properly started off was back in 2001 where I joined National Grid and uh, the first team that I worked for was a a risk modelling team uh, within a strategy department and uh, the remit of the role was to uh, try to help the teams uh, optimise performance under a number of incentives by the regulator and that basically involved um, doing sort of geeky things like um, statistical analysis looking at re- multiple regression correlation time series monte carlo and the like bit of vba programming as well so it's quite a, a technical role um but it's quite broad-reaching because we helped um, a number of internal clients um sort of optimize their performance And that included things like uh, forecasting producing scenarios developing trading strategy models and the like um and then i kind of moved on after a few years of getting bored there and i moved into uh, I wanted to kind of go outside of my comfort zone a little bit. And uh, I moved into a more engineering focused uh, department called Gas Network Investment. Um, I was quite fortunate because now National is quite a large organization. So there are these opportunities available. And uh, just ironically, the first job I got when I joined the team was to become an investment team leader to try and fix one of the worst corroded pipelines in the UK, a 42 kilometer stretch of gas oh, wow. uh, pressured pressure pipeline no pressure no project management experience but uh it was a uh, an interesting uh experience uh how old are you different...
0: at this point how old are
1: you at this right? point if you don't mind me asking oh god uh sort of mid-20s at the time oh, okay yeah yeah been been out at... i'd worked in different places before but this is like where my career okay. really started
0: yeah
1: uh, i had other hats on in the same role as well so i was uh being asked to like stand in front of industry and uh, update and publish uh Quite a meaty document which described how National Grid designed and developed the gas transmission system. So that was quite terrifying at the time, but uh, enjoyable. The, the document itself uh, was quite quite interesting because it looked at things like uh, legislation, environmental policy, how the commercial markets worked, how we uh, model supply and demand data, and uh, importantly, how we model the, the entire gas transmission network. So that was quite uh, interesting. Uh, another part of the role involved. Um, standing in front of the regulator or producing reports to help them understand um, what the need case was for various um, um, uh, capex projects. Then I got bored of that and then I sort of switched uh, into the murky world of electricity and I joined the electricity charging team. And uh, one of of the jobs I had there was to be the business lead for that department to implement a a multi-million pound SAP project, which was interesting. And I also coordinated a team of analysts to to do the annual charging and billing obligations. So that was quite interesting. So kind of going short term, medium term, long term, and then charging. Then uh, I had every intention of leaving National Grid, but I kind of got uh, rubber banded back into the business by an ex-colleague who asked me to help on a, on a very interesting project called Carbon Capture and Storage. So that was too tempting, uh, but the, the caveat was I had to come in back as a contractor. So, so I, that started my life as a consultant or contractor um really interesting job obviously innovative technology uh in a uh, in a sort of a sort of quite a political um landscape it was a one billion pound <clears> competition <throat> that i was involved with and this was really my first foray into project risk management uh, as opposed to the modeling of risk that i did before yeah and um we did some quite sort of uh innovative stuff there you know one of the things that we had to do was to uh set up an enterprise risk management system specifically for the project. Um, It also had a bolt on Monte Carlo tool to it so you could do QCRAs on it. And also kind of trying to push the the boundaries a little bit. We were doing clever things like linking risks to individual clauses in different types of contracts to help us to sort of normalize the data in tender evaluations and things. Then the uh, government decided to pull the one billion pound competition on it so uh, i then found myself in capital delivery in, in national grid again mm-hmm. uh and uh, i worked on a whole range of projects ranging from cable projects overhead lines diversions flood defenses and so on um and then my role uh, morphed into more sort of um political projects like hinkley point c so i was a risk manager on that leading the um regulatory submission part of the risk piece on that hs2 um done things like ousted various consultancies out and in housed risk management functions, which was quite interesting uh, at the time. Nice. And then I got got moved on to... uh, Just tell me to shut up, by the way. Uh, No, no, no. No,
0: fine way. I find this stuff fascinating. It's a bit of a weird journey. Uh, And then um,
1: (laughs) I had one of the jobs that I had at Capital Delivery was to implement an enterprise risk management system, which was quite interesting. Um, So from end to end, you know, doing the uh, business requirements, tender evaluation of different products and then implementing it and uh believe it or not um from start to end of getting the uh, the vendor on site we uh designed implemented and trained people up within three months which is wow. unheard of from what I understand so as a risk manager I can claim that I used zero percent of my contingency and we we're, were on budget and on time or <laughs> well, before time actually so um did that for a bit and then um went on to uh evolve that so taking it from just a risk management system to try and do a bit of a, a risk maturity plan and trying to build risk analytics integrating it with other systems within the business to try and improve the way um, the business reported on on risks and stuff and then after that i got bored of national grid thought i definitely need to leave now and joined <laughs> network rail for a couple of years as a risk and value manager worked on a number of different projects like the the London to corby project the tail end of that project and then um knee deep in the uh, east-west rail phase two project which is quite a large project and helping out with the target cost uh, negotiations on that and then more recently this year earlier this year in February I joined Costain as a principal consultant so again in the middle of COVID switching uh, sectors and industries uh, and the reason why I joined uh, Costain uh, and wanted to become a consultant was I kind of missed the the contracting life of being able to work for different clients and um, I don't talk too much about it, but I work in defence at the moment, uh, so I have to be a bit tight-lipped about what I do and how I do it. But uh, yeah, it's a very, course. very interesting uh, and different uh, environment to be working in. So uh, that's that's me really. Amazing.
0: Amazing. Would you say it's, it's fair to say you come from a little bit more of a technical background? Um,
1: uh, as, as I have well, hopefully, I've illustrated that it's it's not just a technical background. A lot of what I've done started off the first sort of ten years, certainly very analytical um yeah. statistical role and that's where i kind of uh, learned my trade yeah and then the, the more senior i became and as i certainly as i went into contracting it required a lot more um developing and exploiting of stakeholder skills communication you know moving into things like when implementing a risk management system it's not just about implementing a technical system it's about the change management plan communications plan um, setting targets and then monitoring and measuring success things like that so yeah, I had the kind of when I was presenting to industry for uh, National Grid again, standing in front of uh, big industry players in London, central London. It's quite you know quite an experience. So yeah, I've had a bit of everything
0: really. Amazing, amazing. And You mentioned Network Rail. I think that was that where you yourself and Rich actually crossed Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah.
1: <laughs> that's where we that's where we met. Yeah, we, we, I was in uh, the northwestern central region, which is where Rich went as well. So yeah, that's where our paths crossed for the first time. Brilliant.
0: Mm. Well, Rich. Don't know if you want to follow on from that, and um, yeah, take us on a bit of a journey from your career. How you got into risk management, and um, yeah, your journey up to this point.
2: Nice segue there, Pat. Um, <laughs> I suppose I suppose my journey began when I, I did a MSC in project management about twelve years ago, and following that, I got a job at Network Rail as a project management assistant, and for about five years, I worked through the project management grades at Network Rail, but as a project manager um, I always found risk reviews really interesting and QRAs and how that worked and I always wanted to shadow the risk people we had. So eventually I put my money where my mouth was and I got a job as a risk analyst. Um, So I, I was able to cut my teeth in that role working on a variety of small to large projects and after a while i uh I was fortunate enough to become a risk and value manager at Network Rail and I've been doing that for the last five or so years and since I've been doing that a really good job you get to be exposed to all different kinds of things like building risk frameworks and working on really big mega projects to really small. But numerous maintenance ones and the various different challenges that that brings and you know developing staff and risk managers of the future so i've been on railway infrastructure for the last 11 years and that's taken me from the pragmatic world. of project management where risks happen to you, to the the kind of maybe more luxurious seat of watching risks happen to other people and trying to help them avoid them where possible and exploiting
0: opportunities. Amazing. Brilliant. So like I say, this this um this part of the podcast I always find one of the most interesting um is sort of hearing people's backgrounds and 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 where they've come from. I think out of everyone I've spoken to so far, there's only one guest I've had so far who's sort of did risk management at uni straight after sixth form and been risk management exclusive since. Um, So yeah, it's always really interesting to hear everyone's backgrounds. Brilliant. So thanks a lot for that, gents. So I think before we delve um straight into the topic, it'd be good to give a little bit of context for our listeners. So I think it's well documented that there's overwhelming evidence to illustrate that there is a varied performance on projects and, and a significant proportion of those continue to have a jaded track record. So given the discipline of risk management hasn't changed significantly in recent years, do you think that we as a risk profession should be challenging ourselves to innovate and, and explore new ways to improve what we do now and how we do it? So Dee, I think i will start with you.
1: Interesting question. Um, so I think like um, I kind of have to a- a- answer your question with a question for myself and, and for the three of us, I suppose, really, it's yeah, really how, How do we measure the value of um, what we do within the risk profession? Um, Because if we we understand the answer to that question, then we know whether we need to improve or not. But as you've kind of like touched upon, there is overwhelming evidence uh, online freely available to show that projects aren't performing as well as they could be. And the trend doesn't appear to be that positive either. So when you look online uh, and look at things like the, the PMI Pulse of the Profession survey that's done annually, or you look at research from McKinsey or bent Floyberg, you know, it's all out there. When Bent quotes, I think he's got that famous quote where he says, um, only 0.5% of projects uh, delivered to cost, time, and benefits. And that kind of like says it all for me, really. So yeah. that, that provides the context that you, you talked about before, and risk is obviously part of that. And if you, if you look at some of the, the research, And some of the feedback from the the respondents, they do point towards like a risk management kind of area, if you like. And so. Reflecting on that, when you look at our profession and I've only been in it for what? I suppose 20 years, if you think about when I first started risk modelling. right? But um, in my opinion, over the last decade or so, you know, risk management as a profession really hasn't evolved significantly. Yes, there has been you know, developments in QRA, quantitative risk analysis. But even then, if you think about the last decade or so in terms of policies, processes, you know, best practice guides, there hasn't been a lot to distinguish between different professional organizations or what, what other companies are, are using. Now that the cynic in me, um, I might not be popular for saying this, you know, um, those professional organizations have qualifications that they're promoting and selling. And, you know, they're a bit of a cash cow. So part of me thinks, you know, where 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 is the lack of innovation? What, what's not spurred that innovation? It could be that. The other part of me is thinking maybe um, it's about diversity of, of people and thought. And I don't just mean in terms of, like, gender or ethnicity. I mean the fact that in all, many organisations we work in silos. So we I work in a risk management discipline. I'll have a planner that works in the planning department. There'll be cost engineers that work in cost. And I haven't seen that much um, collaborative working across those different disciplines because risk, as we know, cuts across all disciplines, right? Um, and so I think another reason might be something along the lines of it's not really risk is not really embedded into our DNA as an organisation or a client. It's really we're seen as a risk function to drop in when you want to calculate contingency, and then we mm-hmm. kind of drop back into our little box, if you like. Yeah. So I think there's a cultural change that, that, that's required. Um, so, yeah, I, I think given the scale, the cost and the impact of things going wrong on projects and what it's costing you know, the public purse, if you like, and as well as private, uh, I'm a little bit disappointed that we as a profession haven't really innovated or, or done anything in that space. But I, but I do think there's a lot of potential. So trying to end, end by response on a positive note, I think the younger generation, the younger generation uh, coming through um, are because they live in a world, they've grown up with new technology and how it's evolved so rapidly throughout their sort of early years. They're a bit more data literate and a bit more trusting of technology to certain respect. So I think given what we're going to talk about today, I'm hoping there's there's opportunities to innovate and improve and maybe we can explore some of those things.
0: Excellent.
2: I think um due to the fact that often the question can you demonstrate the value of risk management is a difficult question to answer. I think that in itself suggests that there's room for improvement. And I I suppose there's there's, um, there's quite a a simple argument for innovation in, in risk management, and it might be a bit blunt, but as risk practitioners, we ask our teams and our stakeholders to improve themselves and make themselves better. So surely we should do that to ourselves as well.
0: Hundred percent. No, no. I think, um, I think I think that's really poignant, and I think that leads us on quite nicely into the topics. So as I'm sure everybody will have noticed from the from the title of the episode and and sort of a couple of points we've already touched on already, what we're going to be discussing today is is very much around data and analytics, which I think it's fair to say until recently hasn't really been associated with risk management. Um, but recognising the growing popularity around data and analytics in other professions, I think it has begun to find its way into our professions. So with that in mind, I'd be really interested to hear from you both, um, sort of your stance on it really, and 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 why you decided to chat about it today. I'm quite fortunate that my previous role, I, I spent a lot of time speaking to sort of leaders in data and analytics, and um, basically exclusively worked with people in and around that profession. So, um, so yeah, really looking forward to this one. But yeah, gents, Rich, I don't know if you want to kick us off. Why you chose to speak about this topic today?
2: Yeah, it's something that I'm inherently interested in, and the reason for that is as I've gone on a voyage of discovery as a risk practitioner, I've understood to a greater extent the benefits and the flaws of certain techniques, and we'll we'll touch on that in a bit. Um, And this, my time in risk management has also uh, overlapped with the acceleration we've seen in data science over the last 10 years. So while previous to that, we might have seen uh, improvements in processing power, which made uh, QRA techniques much more improved. Um, the emergence of things like predictive analytics or big data and those kind of concepts and being backed by the computing power to start to merge that with things like complexity science or, you know, reference class forecasting or machine learning and deep learning and that kind of thing. I think it creates a lot of exciting opportunities and and therefore, you know, I, I was fortunate to have uh, a line manager who several years ago said, have a look at these topics and they planted the seed and, and, and over the years I've dipped in and out. And it's only over, over the last few years where I've realized how we can harness this and had to go um, it, it, with my businesses um, that I work with. And, you know, I see it as a logical extension of the, the progress we've seen in other fields in what, what we're calling the information age and how we can tie that up with with risk information ultimately i mean what do you think deepak what 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 interests yeah, you about I think
1: this? i wrote down a quote somewhere um i think it's on my laptop but i think it says something like um there's there's a i think it's from the mit sloan article and it says something like um instead of finding a purpose for for data we should find uh data for a purpose and i think they referred to it as Rather than referring it to as data-driven analytics, which which is a term that I've used loads of times before, they use the term uh, decision-driven analytics, and that really stuck in my mind. So going back to my introduction in terms of, you know, where I'm from, right? So in today's language, I I would be called a data scientist in terms of what I did. You know, the the technology now, like machine learning, is is automating what I did manually uh, on a regular basis. So with my background, and because I used to use data in more sophisticated ways, so when we look at risk data, it sits in a risk register and it's relatively static but what what the new technology has kind of brought to the front is how we can do more clever things with it um, and how we can present the information in in different ways that enables us to engage our audiences better you know during risk workshops or risk reviews Uh, and I just think that the way we've looked at risk data over the last decade or so it's very narrow when you look at the fields in a risk register we kind of like Look at that data is literally just risk data we don't we don't link that information with with anything else and as we know within risk you know you have um a cause you have relationships between things and you have effects and, and i think what data analytics or predictive analytics or machine learning, call it whatever you want is now starting to demonstrate is an ability to help us to to navigate some of that stuff um and i, and I think it's not just about i know we're going to be talking about quantification of risk we're going to be talking about data analytics but i think it's i think it's really about how we engage our stakeholders better um you know improve the way we communicate and improve the way we present information so that they can make decisions in a more informed way and at the right time and and i think the way we've done it in the past um it's been it's been relatively simple and crude um and i was just going to sort of end it by saying well, probably should have said this earlier, but you know, like if you look at industries out there, like um, the finance industry, um, the entertainment industry, and, and even the medical industry, they've been using machine learning and this new technology for years and years and years. So I do question why, why within the construction sector and project risk management, if you like, why we haven't sort of exploited it. And, and again, I come back to the, my my personal view: is is this lack of diversity, lack of diverse thinking, lack of having those with you know that data science background embedded within infrastructure organizations to start planting the seed to get those conversations going rather than relying on external consultancies ironically um coming in and, and doing the job so uh, yeah i'm really passionate about like like which you know over the years i've kind of developed a passion for it and um i don't think it's a golden bullet i don't think it's going to solve all our problems but let's start exploring it and if we make mistakes we'll make mistakes but we need to start somewhere and i think um we just need to uh, create an environment and a culture within within businesses where they're open-minded and, and allow yeah. us to start presenting some of this stuff.
0: Yeah, I must admit, I remember when I first joined Optimize, like coming up for a year ago, coming off the back of my previous career, which was um, in sales and recruitment in the data and analytics industry. So... By by no means, I'm a data scientist, but I think I've got, a, I have a, it was my job to have a pretty good understanding of, of what it could do and what it was capable of. And in the early, early weeks of optimise, when I sort of realised how empirically driven risk can be, um, I was just baffled as to why data and analytics wasn't a, a leading, leading had a leading role in, in the profession, really. I thought it was sort of a bit of a no-brainer.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, because um, the more I think about it, the more, I've got different perspectives on it. And part of it, if you think about um those industries that I've just mentioned, so entertainment, finance, and the medical industry, it's the nature of the data, isn't it? So some of it is really transactional, so volumes and volumes of that data being generated on a daily basis. Um and the way in which they code that information and structure it and how they store it is relatively straightforward and it's been around for years. Whereas if you start thinking about risk within the construction industry space it's different isn't it it's not it's not not that straightforward um and you know in terms of like um development of like the it infrastructure in many organizations out there especially within the construction space um it's it's lagged other industries so there are there are there are some reasons to explain why it has taken so long
2: I don't, I don't think it's the only parameter in which you could say the construction industry's been lagging. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what it is about the industry as a whole, but it seems to be um, not the early adopting industry, shall we say.
1: And, and it is surprising, isn't it? Because, you know, going back to some of these, like, like you said, Rich, you've worked on some mega projects, right? And the amount of money involved and the fact that, you know, a lot of these projects are public publicly funded projects, you would think that these failures, these high-profile failures or poor performance that have been kind of shared over the last decade or so, that would spur the industry to, to to change or innovate or do something, but it hasn't been there until recently.
0: Fantastic, gents. Well, like I say, I think before we um, dive right into the detail of, of where data and analytics could take the profession and, and um, the potential it has, I think it's probably quite important for us to establish from a traditional sense, at least where we are currently as a profession. So I'll open this up to, to you both. I mean, would would you like to walk us through how we do it currently?
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, if we looked at the tools and techniques in risk management, um, there's loads of them. It, there's lots of different ones, but if if we were to pick on some, you you'd probably pick on the risk register. Um, you you pick on QRA's as well, both schedule and cost, or integrated things like that. And you know you you look at the inputs for those things, and generally they require you know an estimate of some sort, whether that's a cost or a schedule estimate, some assumptions that that estimate is based on. And then a the discussion around the risks to that the threats and opportunities that can create variance from that estimate and the the challenges with that are firstly um, it's time consuming to put these estimates together, and therefore if they change the the process becomes time consuming again, and you know secondly, the fact that the quantification of risk, which is based on opinion and expert judgment, is fundamentally subjective. You know, risk is a social construct, and we are subject to so many different biases. Um, You know, there's even talk that we've got too many biases now, Um, so we might need to uh, rationalize our bias codex. And, um, you know, humans are flawed, right? And... We need to understand what, what the positive, negative, uh, po- possible negative and positive consequences of uncertain activities are. But we're using a brain that possibly isn't, you know, the best tool for the job. So we, we kind of base investment decisions and big infrastructural reputational decisions on what could be really flawed information. Um, but the benefits of this, and I'm not saying that they're all flawed. Uh, the benefits of this are that because our you know brain that we can comprehend put it together we can understand how we've got to the answer and we can pick it apart and say this is what's driving this answer but the flip side of that is the answer could be completely wrong so we can understand it but um you know the output is wrong whereas on the flip side as you start to look at Machine learning and stuff like that. We might not necessarily understand the output, but it could be more accurate. And it's that trade-off of of those concepts, which is quite interesting. So, you know, I, I've done these traditional approaches for for many years, and you know, I I see how they're beneficial. I also see how they're challenging. Uh, Deep, have you got any any thoughts?
1: A lot, but I'll try and restrain myself. Uh, so. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's, there's pros and cons with anything, right? Um, so with QRA, quantitative risk analysis, for those that are not aware of it, you can have cost risk analysis or schedule risk analysis. So cost risk analysis is relatively straightforward to understand because you're looking at costs. And when we look at costs, you you, you talk about, I, I, I like the way in which, you know, you have that conversation around, it's not just a deterministic number that you're looking at. So there, there is a, a range around that. And I like, you know, when we look at risks and we quantify them for a QRA, you know, there's you talk about the tail end events, and you talk about distributions and stuff like that. So I think that engages your audience and gets them to think about a non-static number, which is good um, because that kind of reflects reality. Um, it's logical, it's uh, scientific, which is good. It's kind of deemed to be, it has been deemed to be best practice for a while, and I probably certainly agree with some some aspects of that. But as you were alluding to, it's um, it can be affected by the inputs, so the inputs can be biased depending upon how you have derived them. So when you when you're talking about building a, you know, um, a minimum most likely value, uh, you know, foot for a risk, how did you arrive at those numbers? What what data, what evidence, what information did you use to support those numbers? And off, more often than not, it's a judgment. It's a it's a balance between a judgment call and limited data or no data at all. And when, you know, this is where people get into the conversation of um, familiar projects that have been done loads and loads of times before yeah. and unique uh, endeavors or, or projects that people feel are unique. And so, how do you derive those parameters for those models and those distributions? So, I think, you know, and the thing about bias is, is that there's one thing in terms of the input to the model, but then when you crank the handle, generate the output. Um, that's where other biases or influences come into play, like politics. You know, they're, they're, you know, it's no secret that we can produce, you know, a scientifically generated number which is logic and you know, uh, been uh, inputted by the business and subject matter experts and what have you. But when you produce the number and present it to the to some more senior people within the organisation, they're quite keen to uh, overlay some of the numbers with their own with their own views so I think bias and politics and influence kind of works at the start of it and at the tail end of it as well uh, and I think this is where the newer technology kind of I don't I wouldn't say eliminates that but it, it will help us to reduce some of it um, and you know force us to tell a more transparent story in one respect but as rich was alluding to as well you know many people have kind of considered in back in the day uh, Monte carlo simulation a black box I don't know what they're going to make of uh, machine learning because that's a bit more, you know, complicated to kind of get your head around. But, you know, they're the things that I like about it. It's on a positive note, scientific, you know, it kind of get engages people, gets people around the table. Um, the flip side of it, it takes a long time. It's kind of man- quite androlic, as my new colleagues like to say. Errors can creep in as well, so there's a lot of manual handovers and interfaces, um, and Data quality can be an issue as well. So, forget bias or anything like that. You know, just general data quality, where the data comes from and how it's been input, can be an issue as well. So, there are there are pros and cons with the way we do things at the moment. And let's not forget, you know, within large major infrastructure projects, people might be familiar with uh, quantitative cost risk analysis. But there are many organisations out there that are just using risk registers and qualitative bandings to to quantify their risks or assess them. So. Yeah. There is still a broad range of tools and techniques being used out there by businesses. Um, so it's not consistent
0: by any means. So do you think the cons with the, the way we currently do things outweigh the, the pros at the moment?
2: Yeah, I'm going to be brave and say this, this, the balance of cons versus pros isn't adequate to justify not innovating further. I think there's enough evidence to demonstrate that there are flaws in traditional processes that would suggest, um, okay, while well, it's the best practice, uh, what we've got now, that doesn't mean that will be the best practice forever. Therefore, we should be open-minded as a profession to explore new avenues.
0: I think it's a brilliant answer.
2: That's that's about. I'm so
0: glad you went first. Uh, <laughs> and I think...
2: Um,
1: it's a really good answer because um, I think me, me and Rich agree on this as well. I think, you know, there is no one gold, golden bullet or one size fits all. And, and I think we're moving into a space now where, you know, you know, historically you'd have in, in any industry in any discipline, you have camps that set themselves up and they tend to be at extremes. Whereas I think um now within our industry, there is a recognition that there is space for more than just one tool or technique and at different points in a project's life cycle. So we might touch upon you know reference class forecasting which is a, a buzzword at the moment i mean i used to do reference class forecasting when i used to build statistical models back in the day so for me i can see the value in them you know and i used to go down to quite a, a granular level when you're looking at plant and machinery but from a project perspective you know you can start high level or sort of work your way down and i think we, we've had conversations with me and rich about um how maybe something like reference class forecasting is more useful further uh, earlier on in a project you know where there's a greater degree of uncertainty uh, around you know risks and things like that and then the further you get into a project where more information more intelligence and uh, inf- becomes available that's the point at which you might want to crank the handle on a QRA you know a schedule risk analysis or cost risk analysis where it's a bit more uh, intelligent or based upon numbers that make more
0: sense. Excellent perfect so I think, um, I think that wraps up quite nicely around where we're at currently so Dee, I think from an innovation perspective, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what is really driving the need case for change. I think we touched on a couple of things there, but is there anything else that you'd like to touch on?
1: Yeah, so I think we already talked about the need case for change in terms of the evidence out there. So we talked about the, the research that's out there and some of the uh, interesting statistics that are there. But if we, if we get closer to, to now, today, if you think about what's happened over the last you know year and a half two years we've had covid and it's it's led to some interesting um developments and and, and attitudes and, and expectations so if you look at things like project speed you know which has been well publicized in the uk uh, there's some sort of famous quotes out there in some of the literature which says you know we want to halve the time and cost uh on sort of railway or sort of public publicly funded projects and if you think about it you know it's 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 all right to say that you know we've been kind of like thundering along using our risk management tools and techniques to try and you know reduce risk exposure on projects and we've done i'm not saying risk management is solely to blame but you know as, as an industry we've not done very well so this is only going to put more pressure on people because people organizations projects you know you name it because you know already we're seeing uh Within organisations that that me and which are aware of, you know, processes and policies are changing. The attitude uh, and risk appetite is changing. Uh, The nature of of how we do work. So so whereas before work was linear and sequential, now there's more of an appetite to uh, do risks uh, and do do activities in parallel, which can do all sorts of uh, interesting things to the risk profile for for projects. Um, So. I think more recently uh, with COVID and, and the effects of that, it's, it's, it's brought it home even more that we need to, we need, we need a way to do things quicker. So not only deliver projects quicker, but, but do what we do as a profession quicker and more efficiently. And, I, and again, I'll go back to the new technology out there. It, it, You know, one of the benefits, whilst they do have drawbacks, is that it can do things quicker um, when set up correctly. So before... Performing a quantitative risk analysis or schedule risk analysis required a lot of handovers and a lot of data, and um, took, took quite a long time. You know, from end to end, from starting the process to producing a report can take weeks or days. You know, so um, that if that can be done at push of a button, you know, with some yeah. caveats, then that's certainly a, a need case for change, isn't it? it sort of justifies
0: the
2: the case for change.
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: I, I think you know, as as a risk manager on public leave funded public infrastructure projects I think you can argue that there's always a need for improvement because ultimately we're talking about taxpayers money that could be used to fund nurses it could be used to fund hospitals schools teachers whatever so every uh, pound we save and every extra minute of benefit we get out of projects can be used to improve the UK PLC, or, or any country, or, or the world even. Um, so, th- th- there is a real kind of moral and social incentive to uh, deliver projects more effectively. And, you know, therefore, to have resistance to that seems a little bit absurd to me. But yeah. I, can, I can appreciate why people have reservations. I remember an anecdote where um, the people on the first train were frightened because they weren't used to traveling at 30 miles an hour. To us, that would seem painfully absurd now. But, you know, if there's this big steam contraption propelling you at velocities that you weren't used to then that would be unfamiliar and there would be a trust barrier to get through. And I think it's a similar concept to where we are now, but I, I feel quite passionate that, you know, these technologies and the pr- approaches are at least an attempt for us to get through this kind of productivity problem that we have on infrastructure projects. Yeah. And I, and I
1: think just, just to reiterate that point I made before it's, we're talking about data, we're talking about tools and technology, but that's not, that's, it's not just about technology. We're humans, we're, we're using these tools and we, we contribute to running them and trying to interpret and, and we're responsible or accountable for taking actions as a result of, of, of the, the output. So there's a lot to be spoken about around the human side of things, which we may touch upon later on possibly, but um, yeah. yeah, it's not just about the
2: technology cool
0: perfect so in terms of these tools and techniques then how are they evolving currently i know we're going to touch a little bit more on on the future um a little bit down the line but how how are these tools and techniques evolving at the moment
1: so i thought you know a buzzword at the moment it has been for a few years is machine learning or well a lot of people talk about ai artificial intelligence which is quite a, a broad term but I don't like to get caught up in sort of um definitions or anything but machine learning is is the buzzword and it's it's basically allowing computers to to sort of explore data try and uh, identify relationships in in data that you can find and then extrapolate in the future to try and build predictive models or forecasts you know it's as simple as that really uh, and I think that's where things are heading so I, i'd call it an evolution um it is a bit of a revolution as well, but I, I call it an evolution because I, I used to do data science, you know, 20 years ago when I first started out and I was doing multiple regression modeling, looking at correlation, Monte Carlo. And yes, the, the, the technology uses different statistical and mathematical techniques slightly, but the, the overall concept, the overall sort of aim is still the same and, and how to apply the technology. But the fundamental thing is it's that it's quicker, it's automated. And you're, you know, you're not spending countless hours getting hold of data, um, having to, you know, I spent hours, days, weeks, 20 years ago, trying to get data into a format that I could do something with it. You know, the data quality was really poor. There was missing data. I think we've come a long way in, um, in, in recent years. You know, a lot of organizations are now building the infrastru- the IT infrastructure to to make some of those data quality issues and, and uh, accessibility less of an issue. You know, there's a lot of, Infrastructure organisations are are building data lakes where they're sucking information out now into Power BI and Tableau and all sorts of fancy reporting tools. So I think we've come a long way, but but ultimately we're speeding up the process for what we used to do manually in in data science.
2: And, and, I, and I think that's 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 the kind of evolution really. I think for me, on top of that, it's really a question is being posed about the tools that we currently use, um, for example, Gantt charts. And if we look at multi-billion complex, I mean, truly complex projects and programmes, can we really understand the complexity of that by looking at a Gantt chart? And I I would suggest that you can't or that it's very difficult to do that. So I think part of this is also the development of technologies that allows us to look at the complexity of these kind of projects in a new way, and that might be taking a Gantt chart and translating it into a kind of network diagram where you understand where the sensitive kind of nodes are in the network, and you know, encouraging ourselves to look at how we build projects in a different way and what are the real sensitive areas. Like we might look at sensitivity anal- analysis in some of our of well, existing tools and techniques and a different way of visualizing that, I suppose. Yeah, and
1: I think the thing about this new technology, so again, you know, the, the, some of the techniques are, are not new, but it's what I used to do manually. So what I, what I do like about the technology is not, it's not siloing, it's not just a restricting thing itself to one data set. So it will, if it's got to access to P6 schedule data, cost data, health and safety data, engineering data, it will mine that data and look for relationships in that information. Obviously, this thing around you know, the boundaries between what the humans should be doing and what the, the algorithms or the computers should be doing needs some sort of careful consideration because you know you can marry ice cream cells with you know temperatures in, in Australia halfway around the world and you might see a link there, I don't know, but you um, need to use a bit of common sense and judgment around that. But I like the fact that it's using more than one data set So those silos, those data silos are kind of broken down and you can kind of um, look for relationships between um, other variables. Because when you look at risk and you start doing root cause analysis, you know, it becomes quite evident that many things are related to many things and many things influence many things. Um, And one cause can create two risks or two impacts or three impacts. And, you know, and I think like Rich was saying, there are now tools out there which are starting to... um, help the risk profession explore those relationships uh, better i won't name any particular software vendors out there but i did recommend one recently on a linkedin post so uh there are better uh tools out there already which are helping us to visualize these relationships and explore them with our stakeholders um and i think that works really well because i remember when rich when i when i came to network rail one of one of the first few projects I, i worked on you know there was this um you get those wall based whiteboards where you can sort of doodle around and that's what I was doing. you know, I moved, I went away from the the risk register and I started doing like a mind mapping type exercise. And I think that's where we need to get to. You make, you know, what I like about some of these new tools out there is that they encourage more, um, participation and and interaction with stakeholders. So when you ask a question, you can kind of like follow the breadcrumb trail through rather than just looking at static risk register and, um, I think I think we're you know we're getting into that space now where we're starting to experiment while would be brave to you know there are some early adopters that are now starting to explore some of this stuff um, yeah. and I remember when I was working on east-west rail phase 2 which is quite a large project without going into too much of the detail I used Power bi so I used like a the network map um, add-in which enabled you to connect links and nodes and things like that um, because there were some really complex commercial, Uh, relationships within the target cost contract and it helped a non-technical audience navigate a lot of information on one page and you could kind of zoom in, drill in, drill out, you could click on links, move them around and all that kind of stuff and I think that you know, being able to touch and move things, that interactive nature of those visualizations is really useful and and gets a lot of um, buying from uh, the, the attendees and
2: stuff. I think that's a really really good point actually because traditionally you could look at a lot of risk processes as linear so if you go back to good old it kind of data information knowledge and that kind of thing and cause risk effect and i think the the taxonomy of risk how we got used to talking about risk is very one or two dimensional and the idea of introducing these tools allows us to look in at things in different ways in different in three dimensions and ultimately it allows us to think creatively because you know projects don't get toppled by the risks you see coming do they They get toppled by the ones you don't see coming yeah. sorry i've started on the sound bites now <laughs> and, <laughs> and um i've been waiting for that for the last half an hour <laughs> yeah and um, you know being able to use different tools like what we might do in workshops now, we're doing pre-mortems or, or things like that, that allow us to look at risk in a new way. And similarly, these kind of analytics-based approaches by merging together different information sources or machine learning where where algorithms might interpret a problem differently to us or different, get different insights, it allows us to see risks in a new way, which might enable us to manage them more effectively.
0: Yeah. In terms of the next question, I've, I've 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 got a couple of things. Something that just mentioned in there, Rich, just sort of spurred another one. So I'll ask that one first. Do you think? Because I've been quite fortunate to have used some of the some of the tools and stuff that you guys mentioned earlier in terms of like interactive uh, workshops and sort of really cool technology in that in that respect. I've been in risk management for nearly a year, and I've still not done a risk review in person. Um, so do you think that COVID and the current climate has, in some aspects, accelerated? The need for this sort of technology?
2: So this might be the first time that Vladimir Lenin has been quoted in a risk management podcast (laughs) But, but Lenin said that some decades happen in weeks and some weeks happen in decades and I think Covid is definitely the former because while we might have had quite a nebulous discussion about the virtual workspace and you know, funnily enough, things like Zoom existed before COVID. They just weren't particularly popular. It is really accelerated working in the virtual environment. Uh, I I don't think it's necessarily accelerated some of the other approaches in terms of machine learning, because I think there's there's generally been a friction there anyway, but especially in terms of the accessibility of these conversations that we're having and the technologies that we can use, um, you know, online to facilitate workshops, which is really interesting to hear that from you, Pat, because when, I'm not sure about you, Deepak, but when I had to switch to uh, facilitating in a virtual environment, it was like a different skill set because I was oh, yeah. used to um interpreting the entire body language, not not yeah. not just this. And um all the etiquette and protocol, you had to be more more stringent
0: with that. Well honestly, so, like I say, I've I've risk management a year. I've only ever done virtual, I consider myself quite confident when doing that and I consider myself quite competent. I think the oh, first yeah. time I'd do it in in front of people in a room, I think I'd be wrapped <laughs> with nerves. It's strange how it goes, isn't it? Just a shame that I guess some organisations have have sort of taken the plunge into slightly more um, modern tools out of necessity rather than innovation. and uh, and. I think, yeah, I think you know, when
1: COVID first kicked in and we kind of got forced to all go online and stumble our way through Teams and Zooms and, and stuff like that, I think it was a bit chaotic and, and you know, like, like trying to figure out how to read people. So we've been used to, me and Rich have been used to workshops with 20, 30 people and trying to read body language. And, you know, I think uh, good risk managers, going back to that human side of things, we, we, we're good at reading people. We're good at, you know, hopefully good at communication and trying to, you know, there's an there's art to facilitation in terms of speeding things up, slowing things down, you know, muting someone physically when they're there you know that kind of thing and uh there was no there, there was no training available you can't you know there wasn't like an off-the-shelf tool that you could say here you go guys just go on this course and you'll be good at facilitating on zoom but i do think now that we we're in this world i think increasingly we're going to have to get used to it and you know it is worthwhile understanding how to facilitate workshops online so i', I would say you're you're probably ahead of the curve a little bit you know you'll you come into it um and you're comfortable with it and you, you've probably got some good practice to share
0: yeah like I say I know um I, I sort of say I'd be wrapped with nerves I think in terms of sort of delivering risk workshops to to groups and stuff I'd sort of take to it as as well as I've taken to it in the virtual world but I think it'd almost be like doing a completely different like something, did you know what we yeah, yeah, the interesting
1: thing, thing is, is it's weird so when, when um when when we all went online Something happened which I was really happy about. So, I'd been meaning to shadow people because I, I wanted to understand what what different projects were like. You know, from a risk workshop perspective, there were different. Um, I think I sat in one of Rich's as well because within Network Rail they do risk and value management, and value management was quite new to me at the time. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, what's this all about? How do you apply the tools, the processes, the techniques? How do you facilitate people during that workshop? How do you get the timing right? And it opened up all those opportunities, like the flick of a switch, you know. So I, I, I volunteered myself, saying, "Look, if anyone wants to um, sit at the back of the virtual bus and just just be a passenger and, and see how it's done, you can do that." So uh, it, it created new opportunities to learn for me. So I, thought, I, I really welcomed it.
0: Amazing, brilliant. So um, just on the last bit for me, really, then in terms of the innovation piece. So I think we've sort of touched very much on the um, on the sort of benefits of. Introducing these tools and techniques. I mean, from my perspective, I don't know how similar it would be in this particular instance, but having spoken to a lot of business leaders who um, are hiring in data and analytics in my previous career, there was a lot of business leaders who sort of would just throw money at data and analytics and sort of expect it to start saving them or making the money, whatever the, the, the uh, motivation was. I suppose they're just doing it because they see other organisations doing it, but they don't really have any understanding of why, what or how. Um, that's just a sort of an example that I can think on and, and I wonder if, if you have any thoughts on, on that as well uh, in terms of sort of drawbacks and challenges of this new technology coming into the profession. I think
2: there's currently a lack of understanding about where humans come into it. And we keep on saying, oh, we'll talk about humans in a bit. Um, and because it's a, such a, a fundamental element that human interface that yeah. you, you end up touching on it all the time and um, you know I think there's a real misunderstanding there in terms of you know some kind of terminator-esque vision <laughs> of <laughs> a machine learning project manager who's going to take over the world and do what make all our decisions for us and I think you know there's an education piece that needs to happen where we're saying you know the objective's the same giving you information to make the best decisions you can um, to make the best projects you can it's just the information comes in a different way and the method of getting that information is different and similarly I think you know we talked about there being quite a polarized debate about these these kind of approaches are are you traditional or are you a, a lunatic futurist <laughs> or, or or whatever and the 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 honest answer is they're complementary and any of these approaches needs a human at the end of it to make a judgment because it's the judgment that is the creative human element of the process and ai or whatever can't do that and they also can't sit in front of the public select committee. Um, so, you know, I think one of the drawbacks is currently the lack of understanding as, as to the context of these tools and the real benefits of them. And I think there's a lot of people, and a lot of organisations who are going through that process at the moment. So I don't think that will continue to be a drawback. But I think it is a challenge at the moment. Do you
0: yeah, feel... it's an interesting one, isn't it? Sorry, Sorry go ahead, my... Deepak. No, it's all right. Go ahead. no, I was just going to say in terms of other, other potential drawbacks, you feel like there might be risk professionals listening to this podcast who, I don't know, they might be well into the career, they might be 10 years into the career and they've always done things a certain way and there might be a little bit of a fear of the unknown about these new tools and techniques and even for organisations to, to be able to train their employees on this stuff. Do you think that's a potential drawback?
1: I think... Uh it's just uh that's normal life isn't it you know new technology comes about uh, i mean which can probably quote some more interesting you know examples from hundreds of years ago and stuff like that but i think um for me it's just normal it's you know new technology comes along a new process comes along which does things quicker You, you either adapt and go with it or you don't i think that the interesting thing for me is going back to the fact that this new technology can. Do things a lot quicker so we're not talking about making decisions we're just saying you know analyze the information we'll caveat it we'll still allow the human to look at it but previously what would have taken me you know a day and a half to do you know from getting the data to cranking the handle to producing an output if that can be done in half an hour what, what i think the real question for, for, for us as a risk professional is what are you going to do with all that time you know how, how how do you demonstrate you're, you, as a human being, as a risk and value manager, are still adding value? Um, and so I think that's, that's the thing that I think people aren't really thinking about at the moment. And I don't think they're either they don't want to think about it or they're, they're not aware that it's coming, but it is coming. And I think, you know, as soon as um, some of these early adopting organisations start seeing the value in this new technology, It's going to become a reality. And then we'll start looking at organisations saying, oh, we can make a saving here. So how do we then justify our role? And I I think there is space for us, but I think we need to evolve. So those are what I'd say to those people that are, you know, resistant to change for for whatever reason, you know, just start looking online, try try and understand the new technology, because um, I think it's going to only help us to do our job better and it will allow us time to, spend more time as humans are, are better at doing. Like Rich, he's a great communicator. You know, he can spend more time sitting down with the project team, helping them go through the analysis rather than spending half of his time getting the data and cranking the handle in, in the tools. Um, and I think the one thing that I've been thinking about recently is I'd want to invest that time that I get back learning more about that domain knowledge because I think we, we're kind of getting... A bit ahead of ourselves a little bit by saying the technology is going to speed things up it's going to produce a nice analysis but i think that without that context that domain knowledge you know i think uh, some of that's missed and i think we we as risk practitioners need to spend more time trying to not become engineers or experts but at least have a, a certain level of domain knowledge you know i've just i've just started in, in this new job and i know nothing about it and i know nothing about the industry and I've got the skill, I've got the technical skills, so I can do QRAs, Monte Carlo, all that kind of stuff. But I don't know anything about build strategy and stuff like that. So I'm trying to invest time doing that. And I think there's more scope for us to add more value in that in that
2: way, I think. What I would like to see is, you know, that there are organisations out there who are developing what you might call virtual assistants who would be able to do I say who that would be able to um, sort through various sources of data and put together an information pack that might take us hours to do. And, you know, what, as you say, Deepak, what do we do with those hours? And I think we have a choice to either see that as a threat or see it as an opportunity. And, you know, my natural inclination would be well, I can spend more time on the introspection of models and outputs and how i would communicate that and how i would recommend action plans rather than spending four hours fixing a schedule (laughs) or or something like that which is um and let's let's say it's a necessary evil you know and you know it's just that mindset thing you know change often comes at my my current phone is irrecognizable from the first mobile phone i had and you know I, I went to a ted talk a few years ago and someone said isn't it funny how when you ask people to change they're quite reluctant but when you ask people to innovate it sounds really positive and it makes me wonder well, what's the difference between those why do we have different relationships with that so is it change or is it innovation you know so uh, I, I think that's a really important question for risk practitioners and project practitioners, because this is happening across the project space, really one for them to consider.
0: Amazing. Fascinating. Thanks, Rich. So just moving on into the future then, really, I think you touched upon it um, a little bit earlier, Rich. But as everyone will have noticed in the title of the episode, um, we have added the phrase friend, not foe. (laughs) <laughs> when it comes to data analytics and risk management so as we do look into the future of the profession um, gents how might this new technology change the role of the risk manager
1: well i think we've touched upon it a little bit when we were talking about what do you do with that extra time that you've got so so for me it's about um i'm, I'm keen to build a level of domain knowledge um that helps me to when i'm looking at the data it's not um alien to me so it kind of makes sense there's some sort of high-level principles that I understand about it but also um, again going back to this human side you know interacting with people you know presenting information to um, different audiences you know rather than just having a an official risk workshop now we've got you know specific bits of information that we can go and target a smaller group and and focus on you know what is the risk do we think it's a risk how do we be proactive and, and mitigate those risks? Because again, we're talking a lot about quantification and a lot about technology, but you know, 90 percent ninety percent—I don't know—majority of risks. If you if you worked in this space before, you know they're the, the typical risks that pop up, and you should be doing something about it. So for me, it's about going back to that human side, um, communicating, engaging people, presenting useful information uh, to people. Um, so. The other thing that I see is a a potential blurring of the boundaries between different roles. So you've you've talked specifically about the risk manager, but, you know, if you think about what a planner should be doing, a risk manager should be doing, a project manager should be doing, for me, this new technology starts kind of blurring some of the boundaries a little bit. Um, I still think there's a place for all three, but, you know, going back to this concept that rich talked about the uh, you know the ai assistant or whatever you know that's taking away a lot of the grunt work people are going to have a lot more time on their hands and so would would there be a more blurring of the boundaries i'm not sure it's just a question i've got in my mind i haven't really thought about it but you know the planners provide the schedule we input that into the monte carlo model uh produce an sra output and the project manager looks at the output you know how is that going to change with new technology and how we speed up the process Mm,
2: yeah it's a really interesting one because you know you're looking at loads of different potential future states aren't you and you know if we say if we take grunt work out of your job which is x percent and that frees up x percent of someone's job and we do that across 10 people that frees up um, a certain number of people so does that mean therefore that we can Join together some aspects of these roles, so we can then deliver more stuff. Or do, does it mean that our roles might evolve into kind of rather than data kind of miners and putting all that stuff together in um, reporting spreadsheets? We actually become data corralers, where we have uh, we have um, you know algorithms that do this, and we audit that kind of stuff. Or, you know, my kind of dream scenario as a risk manager has been to make myself redundant by, um, you know, integrating risk into all the different functions. So we don't have a risk page in our monthly report. We have all the different sources of information that include risk when they are put together. So actually, if the use of these tools means that risk as a concept and as a profession becomes integrated in the other parts of project team roles, with project manager, commercial planner, whatever. Um, and, you know, we, we end up with this super risk manager that just happens to have project management as the title. I think that's a wonderful place to be. And I think, you know, when we look at all the risk management standards and enterprise risk management and things like that, you know, they all talk about integrating risk management. So what better way to integrate it than to embed it default into the tools that, that our project practitioners will have yeah
1: really really interesting point that and you know how long have we had um risk managers for in the profession for not not that long in the in the history of things right so you know yeah. this it does make me think what, what were we doing before then um regardless of project performance right which hasn't necessarily improved um, but i do i do like that and i and i think i i agree with rich and it sounds really um Weird to say it, but you know, I said it. I think I said it earlier on in the podcast. What we should be doing is embedding the principles of you know good practice risk management across every department, every function. You know that mindset about understanding what a risk is and how to mitigate it. It's not. I don't see that as just a function. I think it should be part of how we make decisions. I mean, we do it as human beings, right? Outside of work, every day we look at risks and we identify them. And as a parent of two young kids, you know, I'm constantly telling them to hold the handrail and all that kind of stuff, right? So, um, yeah, I I think that's the future. I I think eventually, you know, hopefully if we do our jobs correctly in in a few years' time, you know, we we should be um, making everyone a good risk manager, really.
0: Mm. Fascinating. Thanks, gents. So something that I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on um is around the concept of parkinson's law so for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with this this is essentially an adage that says work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion so just to put that into layman's terms for example if you're given a week for a task which would only take a day to complete um, it often unnecessarily will stretch that task right the way to the end of the week so the question for you both is if we make better use of data to develop our baseline so for example reference class forecasting as we've mentioned if our baseline becomes our post-risk position how do we avoid falling foul of of this said parkinson's law
2: well i'd like to jump in and say that parkinson's law takes a very dim view of humanity and i would (laughs) I, i would i would challenge whether it's it's always correct. and You know, I, I, I get the concept. Yeah. Um, but um, maybe it's it's a little bit extreme. I, I suppose my answer to this, you know, bearing in mind some of the kind of concepts and tools that we talked before is the idea of kind of pre and post risk. So we, we say, OK, um, an activity might take one day or it might take the whole week, you know, and you know, at what point is it realistic to plan? Do we plan for the worst case that we've got a dim view of, of humanity or do we plan for how much we think it should really take? Yeah. And I'd actually challenge that and turn it on, on its head and say, why don't we take the risk out of it and say, actually, how much does this thing, how much has this thing taken in the past on similar projects? So rather than say, Let, let's try and calculate um, the uncertainty associated with it, knowing that if we give someone some contingency, they will use it, which is, you know, a, a cited phenomenon. Um, we could say, well, how long has this taken us in the past, and what what is the range of out, outcomes and outputs that 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 we have witnessed with these kinds of activities? So, rather than giving people the invitation to use the time, or let's say, well, what have people done in the past? Yeah, Uh,
1: and again, I I actually don't see this as anything different to how things have been in the past. So, you know, like, this is all about building contingency uh, into baselines, right? And saying, you know, this is how how much time you've got or this is how much it's going to cost. And I think I agree, I was going to say something similar to what what, what you talked about because I was kind of triggered by the the buzzword um, reference class forecasting there. But I think, um, again, sometimes I think we get, Blitzed by the analytics uh, and the data, and what quantification and analysis is useful. What what actually spurs someone into action? Um, that's a question I've got. Because um, if most of the quantification, it usually, typically they'll call a the risk guy and say, "Can you crank the handle?" And because it's to do with early funding uh, for, for a project, if you like. But I think the earlier that we intervene. And take action the better chances we've got of success so regardless of what the numbers are showing regardless of the benchmarks i think it's like common sense here's an activity that you need to do how long do we think it's going to take which has already mentioned the you know the minimum most maximum or, or historical data i think the, the focus should be around what are you going to do about it and I, and I do think that you know some of the analytics um focus too heavily on quantification of the impact I think some of the stuff that I you know certainly I've been experimenting with over the last few years is around producing analysis around um, the mitigation of risks you know and I think that's a space where we could probably explore a bit more um so things like you know looking at things like uh, I don't know when you have like your risk burn down for example uh, or whatever people call it you know over time your, your risk profile Usually, people look at expiry dates of risks. Well, should you not really be using the last target date of the mitigation action that you have against that risk? So, if you've got five mitigation actions and one finishes on the 22nd of September, should that not be the expiry date for the risk? So, there's lots of different ways of looking at it. But um, yeah, my mind's kind of like um, sort of exploring those at the moment. So, uh, I, I think ultimately, it's a you know, we talk about pre-risk, post-risk and all that, but I think that the focus should come back to what are we going to do about it? Because ultimately it's about ownership, it's about accountability, it's about understanding how we motivate people into action. So you talked about people filling up that time. Well, how do we motivate them to uh, do it quicker or avoid those risks? I
0: think it comes down to culture, down to
1: Culture, doesn't it? Um, no. Yeah, it comes down to culture, but I think it's kind of like, um, you, know, you can talk about culture all day long, um how do you how do you motivate someone to, to do something you know sooner rather than later just going back to this gap filling time you know some of us are procrastinators when we, when we think about something we want to push something back push something back as far as you can um and, and, I, and I think it's like trying to understand using analytics so there, there are things going on out yeah. there in the analytics field around how to motivate people to to get on with a task um I think that's that's something we can probably explore in the future
0: brilliant thanks gents um so just final point from me really. so I think we've been flirting with the uh, with the question of um the human factor throughout the uh the podcast and never really sort of delving right into it so Rich, I think you touched on this briefly, but I'd be interested to hear to hear both of your your thoughts on this so in terms of the human element and and sort of managing risk, so as we mentioned earlier sort of we always, we've always we always looked at data um, when managing risk, and it's always been quite an empirically driven exercise. However, expertise, leadership, that human factor on how we should think about risk really weighs in. So I suppose there's two parts to this question, really. So firstly, there's obviously the human element that we touched on earlier in that data and analytics automation could potentially improve on. So, you know, reducing human error from unconscious bias or just general failures in human nature... But then on the flip side of the coin, it's how far can we take this? So obviously, despite its flaws, the human element is arguably one of the most fundamental aspects in managing risk. I guess the question is, how far does data analytics actually go to improve the profession and how much human interaction will still be needed and how much can be substituted? Um, Rich, I know you touched on it earlier, but I don't know if you... um if you've If you've got any more thoughts on that uh,
2: to paraphrase someone in this podcast, well, it all comes down to culture, and I could talk about that all day long but um it it does because it is a culture and and the framework and the the context of an organization that will draw the line between where these processes stop and where human judgment comes in, and that line will be drawn at slightly different points but I am convinced that that line will exist um, in any environment where these tools are used. I don't think we'll have, as I said before, like Terminator-esque characters, robotically making judgments on um, publicly funded infrastructure, at least in this decade. Uh, or maybe, maybe in this century, I don't know. I
0: was going to say, I'm sure that's what they said in Terminator, Rich. <laughs> well, well yeah, yeah,
2: be careful. Um, but um, the fact is, you know, because of the social need for these kinds of projects or the profit motive behind, you know, having a healthy supply chain, there needs to be an accountability for decision making. And that accountability needs to sit with 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 a project director or or a human of some sort um and you know we need to see these approaches as a way of making that decision making more effective not as a replacement or an either or yeah so you know in 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 conclusion i think how far it goes can vary depending on how a uh a organization wants to interpret that, but I think there'll always be that kind of line in the sand where we hand over to an accountable body which would be be a human I feel all kind of space age with those sentences
0: <laughs> <laughs> no no, like i say I think when when I was sort of weighing up the topic, that was sort of one of the first things that came to mind, so I thought it'd be a good a good place to finish but d d I don't know if you've
1: got any um Yeah I mean like, I think Rich or he always kind of articulates himself really well um I think the bit that I'd add to 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 that is and we talked about how it improves the profession and how much can be substituted but just thinking it through maybe I'm going off on a tangent here a little bit but you know with with so many moving parts in the project so much data has been generated and if we're going into this world where a lot of that data is now being um measured monitored and, and sometimes that can go you know the granular level can go down to an individual i think there are some kind of like other sort of challenging sort of subject areas that we probably need to touch upon like you know ethics and what what, what is ethical and how, how how say say for example someone makes a decision and they um rely on the output from the the machine are they accountable can you blame the computer afterwards you know when you have that post-mortem and you're looking at stuff you know how is the organization going back to culture how is the organization um, going to treat that individual that person who had to make the decision so for me again it comes down to accountability responsibility we've talked about sponsors we've talked about you know people on the shop floor having to make decisions on a daily basis And more often than not, a lot of these decisions are going to have to be made, you know, prior to big ones being made. And then when you look back historically at how those decisions and how you got to where you got to, you know, I do. do, Part of me does worry about it. You know, like um, we talk about like new technology, like machine learning. Well, another part of that technology, which is already being used by some sort of innovators out there are things like NLP you know natural language processing so already and it's been used in industries to be fair already um you know analyzing what people are saying in conversations you know and how that's being captured and i know some some systems are already starting to say hey look project manager you might be aware of this particular area or activity because you know people are talking about it in a potentially negative way or there are kind of alarm bells ringing Um, so I think you know how will that impact individuals working on a project is that likely to increase their performance and motivation is that likely to affect their mental health knowing that they're being monitored you know in this new kind of like future future state you know a bit like the Chinese do with all their people and all those cameras and technology out there I don't know so uh, it brings up more questions than answers unfortunately but um, I think we just need to like Rich was saying I think we need to I think there's not enough being done at the moment to educate people at different levels within the organisation, whether it's, you know, your sponsors or your directors or or project managers. Uh, I know from experience, I, I can say hand on my heart, the last three, four, five years, hardly any of that's taking place. And the people are aware of this technology. People are starting to experiment with it. But I think we need to get ahead of the curve a little bit and try and think about, how we're going to have those conversations and what it means for us day to day.
2: And it's completely our responsibility as project leaders to create that environment and to set out those roles and responsibilities. Computers can't do it. Computers can't build culture. They can do maths dead quick, but they can't tell us what's right or wrong. Boom, another sound. Boom, Boom. there you go. I was waiting to get that one in. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you, I can go now. Um, But, you know, we, we talk about you know being able to eliminate biases you can write algorithms with biases in them so while we at the moment we might peer review the decisions to fund projects we could be peer reviewing and auditing um the bias and algorithms to say actually are we um just uh programming these tools to make the same mistakes we did so we can talk down the risk and talk up the benefits of projects so we can get them greenlit and once the greenlit we sunk too much money in them to, to cancel them halfway through you know you, there, there are those pitfalls as well um
1: it's interesting so you, because we talk about um algorithms being biased and you know the the traditional forms being biased but but you know even things like um we talked about reference class forecasting so when you produce your data set that you're building to, to, to be your reference class. How did you do that? Who's responsible for it? You know, what was the logic and rationale behind building that set to, to, you know, base your forecasts against and things like that. So yeah, it's there, it's there in everything that we do. And I think it will be there in the future, but I think we just need to start that education and, and you know, like Rich knows, you know, I've been kind of like a reading up on this stuff now, and I, I try and write a few articles to share what I've learned as I'm going along my sort of learning journey. Because I think you know it's in our best interest to start trying to understand you know the basics around what this technology is, how it works, how I might fit into that space in the future. Um, I think it's really important and I'm hoping this podcast will kind of sort of spur there, there are I think there is a recognition now I mean um, both Richard and myself are members of the APM and I know that they're now starting to recognize the importance of um data analytics project data analytics whatever you want to call it and so the conversation has started and I'm hoping through these organizations these thought-leading organizations out there they start you know stimulating that conversation and getting us thinking um and maybe asking some of those difficult questions that we're maybe too afraid to ask within our own parent organizations I remember Deepak you wrote
2: an article about algorithmic leaders that people can access on on linkedin and you know that that terminology was new to me when i read it and it really resonated with me because we need people who are open-minded and progressive who will create the environment for these things to flourish because if it's if we try and grow these in a hostile uh, frictionful environment then that we're not going to realise their benefits as quickly as, as we could.
0: I was just going to say, I think it'd be fascinating to to come back to this podcast in five years, ten years, and see <laughs> see how far we've come. Maybe we could see how
2: it. wrong we were. <laughs> Richard's
1: going to look about fifteen years younger with his new avatar.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could get one of the uh, the Terminator risk manager robots on as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, but no, gents, it's been um, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion, and um, and, I, and I hope our listeners um, have enjoyed it. I mean, I no, I think I know the answer from both of you, but data and analytics and risk management, friend or foe? Where are we going? Yeah, Thumb- it's
2: two two thumbs up. From two, me. Thumbs up. <laughs> two
0: thumbs up. Two thumbs up. Amazing. Well, um, thanks so much for your time today, gents. And um, for anybody that's watching this on, uh, on the video content, they'll probably see the, uh, how dark it is outside. We're actually recording this. It's currently 10 to 8 on a Friday evening. So it's a wild one for, for the three of us tonight. <laughs> but, um, but no, like I say, I couldn't thank you, more. You, you You both enough for, for coming on, especially at this time. So just final point for me and, and where I end all the podcasts with uh, with the brilliant guests that come on so um Deepak will start with yourself so if you to give you if you were able to give yourself a piece of advice um what's starting out in your career in risk management that you know now that you didn't know then what would that piece of advice be?
1: I've got three three bits of advice I've been thinking about this because you told me in advance um <laughs> I think it uh, on the spot. it's not that live uh <laughs> exactly I think the one thing if you notice when I when I describe my career path um, I jumped around quite a lot and I think you mentioned that um, many of your uh, or, um, people that you've recorded in the past have had varied careers as well so so my my advice would be to try and move around you know there are I think increasingly there's there's so many risk qualifications whether it's you know postgraduate or graduate and and I think it's it's very easy to slip into that um, profession and stay within it and be a risk manager analyst and, and then an you know manager and whatever afterwards i think it's important to i talked about domain knowledge and I, and I think different perspectives and i found that being a data analyst a project manager you know doing an is project or doing a capex project and all that kind of stuff it's really opened my eyes uh, to to different ways of doing things and a lot of the ideas that i come up with at work have been driven by that that diversity of thought and diversity of people and mingling with different things the other thing i'd say linked to that as well is network so if you rather than you know waiting for a risk workshop to turn up meet meet these people you know be proactive you know spend 15 minutes 10 minutes in a virtual you know coffee coffee conversation or something like that you know it's so easy now to do it online you know just start building up a network with people whether it's online on linkedin or whether it's at work because again you're putting yourself um allowing yourself to be exposed to different um, perspectives and the last thing i'll say is obviously listen to this podcast and, and <laughs> other other equivalent podcasts out there because again you know I, certainly during lockdown i, I really um took to, to listening to podcasts and i've shared some of them online and i'll share this one as well now appreciate but, the talk. Um, you can you know uh, learning you know you can learn something you know, I've, I've been quite critical of postgraduate qualifications but you know you can learn something in a textbook Uh, And you can sit in an exam and do it, but there's nothing like um, listening to someone else's real uh, experiences and interpretation and feelings about how things have been on their sort of journey. So I'd certainly recommend uh, listening to as many podcasts as you can
0: exactly exactly and that's precisely why i started this to be honest is um like you say there's you can go for as much theory as you like and as many textbooks as you like but real unique first-hand experience is invaluable um and to be able to have a platform to share that and listen to it whether you're at the start of your career or um or you you're you're a senior leader is is um is a great opportunity so rich same for yourself piece of advice um fire away
2: Well, just off the top of my head, I would say that, um, (laughs) tongue-in-cheek, risk management is a really um, diverse, versatile, multifaceted uh, profession. Um, And you can go in so many different directions with it. Uh, And when I started as as a risk professional, you know, a few years ago, I didn't think I'd be having conversations like this at all, right. and you know I've been able over the years to harness the side of my character that's quite playful, quite creative, and marry that with risk concepts and to achieve the objectives of what I've needed to do or my team's needed to do with our stakeholders so my My advice I would be to myself would be to be open-minded about the potential opportunities that there are and seek the ones that appeal to your personality, whether that is someone who's fantastic with data like Deepak is, and I'm I'm forever learning little nuggets from him. or someone who who likes communicating or storytelling, which is another really important part of risk management, yeah. or somewhere in between, whether that's the introspection of models, or whether it's um, you know providing constructive challenge and things like that. All these different things are an equally important part of risk management. Have a good think about what is really important to you and what will kind of fulfill your soul and make you happy in, in your work and seek out those opportunities.
0: Love that. Love that. Sound yeah. advice. Um, brilliant. So just as we, uh, as we, as we round it off then, if anybody wants to get in touch with the, uh, with either of you in terms of whether it's to talk all things data or risk or anything that we've touched on today, um, what would be the best way for them to, to get in touch?
2: Uh, it would be LinkedIn and my name is is here. <laughs> That's so cool. Jones. Yeah, same age.
1: go on LinkedIn. Cool.
0: I'll um I'll tag you both. I'll sorry, I'll um I'll attach links to your profiles in the podcast notes for this episode anyway. But yeah, like I say, gentlemen, thanks so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure, fascinating chat, and um looking forward to the next one.
1: No worries. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. Doing this, really fun. Thank you. Yeah.
0: No worries, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, all the bye. best. Bye-bye. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode of Riskologists, be sure to follow Optimise on all of our social media channels where you can subscribe to this podcast and be notified of every episode so you don't miss a thing. Please like, share, and leave reviews to help support us and increase our reach within the wider risk community. And join us next time, where I'll be chatting with another leading figure in the world of risk. Until then, thanks a lot for listening and take it easy.